0: and we are live. What was the kid's name in the book? Herbie? Honestly, I have no idea. I think it was Herbie. Did I put it in the notes? I don't remember at all. Oh no, no, I didn't because that's one of your lessons. But yes, it's Russell. Yeah, it's definitely Russell. Anyway, welcome to the College Info Geek podcast from our brand new studio, which is in fact the same room, just flipped around. Hey, look, there's like lights and stuff. Yeah, there's some cool stuff. It has taken us quite a while to get this studio set up, you better, but you better appreciate this. It took so much work. I mean it most did, of the people It really did though. Most of the people <laughs> listening to this are on the audio feed, so they can't. Yeah, no, that, that they don't have to appreciate single-tier. it.
1: They don't have to appreciate it. But the people on the YouTube <laughs> You gotta appreciate it.
0: We appreciate it. I feel we do appreciate over here. it. Yes. Okay. So for this episode in particular, I think that it is essential for us to get right into the topic. Because yes. what is essential in life? Well, probably the topic of this Being episode. Being on topic. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So I know you read this book, Essentialism, a while ago. Yeah. I read it in 2015. What? 2015. So two years ago. Okay. Yep. Uh, I just finished it yesterday, actually. Um, you have been, I know you've been, haranguing me to read it for a while. Yes, I have been harambeing you. You've been harambeing me to read it for a while. Rest in peace, too soon. And I half read it, half listened to it, because over the weekend I realized that, one, the CIG 30-Day Challenge is still going on. Follow me on Instagram if you don't know what that is. And two, I also had to build this studio on Sunday.
1: So there wasn't
0: time to read, but there was time to go for a 15-mile bike ride and listen to that book. That's fair. So I basically spent all of Sunday like riding my bike or walking to the grocery store, listening to the other half of the book I hadn't read yet and getting through it. Cool. And I gotta say, I think you are justified in liking this book yeah. and recommending it. It's it I think good. it's my favorite nonfiction book. It's your favorite one.
1: It may be. It's in my favorites book list on Goodreads. Okay. I don't remember what other non fictions might be in there. So but, before we get into
0: know. like an in-depth discussion about what we learned, what exactly is essentialism for people who have not okay. listened so, to it, um, who didn't take our homework assignment from yeah, last week to listen to it? Overall, or to what's read the it. point? Yeah, what is the point uh, of it here?
1: Well, one, here's a book for those watching.
0: Essentialism. Yeah. It's pretty dope. Nice and blown out for the lighting. Yeah,
1: it's this tea's <laughs> cooler though, so I'm going to leave that there.
0: But essentialism
1: is summed up really well, I think, by one of the images in the book, and I don't, I don't know where it is right now, but it's really easy to, easy to describe. And so you've got two circles. On one side, you've got a circle, and the circle represents a person and their energy and their time and attention and such. And that circle's got a bunch of little arrows coming out in every direction like a sun. Mm. This person has tons of things they're trying to do, and each of the arrows only goes out a little bit, only like half an inch or so they're accomplishing very little in, like, 20 things. Yeah. And then next to it, there's another circle with one arrow, but it goes, like, all the way across the page. Yeah. So the point of essentialism is basically do less but better. Do fewer things and go deeper into those things. Do Mm -hmm. a better job and become an expert or fully enjoy something
0: more than multiple things. That's basically the point. So this book is really for the kind of people who are like, I have so many interests, so many opportunities. How do I narrow them down? What do I do with my life? I feel like I'm going in a million directions. Yeah.
1: So this book talks a lot about like, how can you pare down on stuff you're doing? How can you Mm -hmm. determine which of these things are actually important? How much do these things mean to you? What problems should you solve first? So it also talks a bit about what if you have a whole bunch of things that you could potentially improve something with, Mm -hmm. where do you start? I don't know. Basically, this is a good antidote antidote to being overwhelmed. Yeah. Which is why I started rereading it this year, actually, before we even knew this was going to be a podcast episode. I just started reading it again, thinking that it would be nice to have some fresh inspiration. Did you feel like you were
0: going in a million directions then? Like, was it just sort
1: of like a personal uh, thing? Well, yeah, just since moving, I've kind of felt like a lack of clear direction because I've had Mm. so many things to do related purely to setting up my apartment and no floor. And, and in having no floor for two and a half months, so that was pretty frustrating.
0: And levitating everywhere is just very taxing on
1: the body. Yes, it is very taxing. <laughs> you must em- empty the void or become wind or some nonsense.
0: Tea's ready, but, by the way. Um. Oh, dope. If you want it. It's, a little, it's probably a little more intense than the type of tea you usually drink. I didn't have any Genmai Cha on hand. I'm sorry. Genmai Cha is delicious, Tom. Well, maybe I'll buy some.
1: But yeah, I was feeling basically personally overwhelmed with all of my interests. And I was like, Okay, well, I'm in Colorado now. Fresh start. What do I do? I'm going to read this book. I'm going to pare down on some stuff that I assumed I needed just because I had them in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to see what happens.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So I know you told me to read this book, but I think this was like the perfect time for me to read it. And I got to say, so I finished the book yesterday. I went on to Goodreads to mark down that I had finished it. Um, and I guess if anyone's wondering what I read, I have a Goodreads account. We'll link to it in the show notes. I put I don't rate books there. I really don't. I don't rate either. I don't either. really know what to rate things. I'm not a very critical person. So I end up rating most things five stars because I'm yeah. like, that was useful. I guess I'll give it five stars. I'm not really sure what I would take away from it. But I was really surprised because I went into the reviews because I was curious. And there was like a bunch of people who had negative reviews of this book. And it really seemed like the criticisms were there's not a whole lot new in this book. Like I've read a lot of this before. And I kind of have to agree, but I think of it this way. Like people hire personal trainers one to be taught how to work out. Yeah. But more than that, to have somebody who will make them work out and who will remind them this is why you're doing what you're doing. Like They're there to make sure you do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And this book is like a cheaper version of a trainer for me. I read it and I was like, okay, I know I'm supposed to focus. I've been talking about focus on my channel for so long. We talk about deep work, we talk about all these things, and yet I still feel like my life is going a million different directions. And I have all these ideas, and CIG is growing, so we have the podcast, we have the new studio rebuild, You know, the videos, we had crash course, which is launching today. Like there was a zillion things. And I'm like, I feel like that, that diagram of the circle with all the things going in one direction, but I'm not quite sure where to go from there. Yeah. And I found this book helpful because it wasn't just like saying you need to clarify your mission and focus on one thing. It actually talked about how to do it step by step. Yeah, how to, how to make say the hard no decisions. to things. Yeah, how to say no to things uh, gracefully, how to actually call things that you're already committed to, all those kind of things. And then how to be more effective in focusing in your day-to-day life. Yeah, which I found helpful. So, even though there are some negative reviews on on Goodreads and even though it's not the kind of book that it's like going to teach you a zillion new facts, I think it's very useful. That's true of like All these kind of productivity books though. You're
1: always going to find somebody who's like, yeah, you could have wrote that in basically a blog post. Well, yes, Mm -hmm. but certain certain anecdotes, certain combinations of words are going to speak to me at certain times. Yeah. Of course, the whole book wasn't new to me, but I still found value the second time I read every word in there before, Mm -hmm. but it was still valuable because it's going to speak to me at the right time to inspire
0: me. I mean, that, that is the reason for reading a book twice, right? Like yeah. you wouldn't rate a book worse the second time you read it. Yeah, I wouldn't just be because, like, yeah, I already well, read I this. knew this all this is, already, so. <laughs> <laughs> I already knew it. Yeah, sometimes I get frustrated with people, like not that frustrated because I know that like, customer reviews are not critic reviews, but very occasionally I'll look at the reviews of my own book on Amazon and somebody will give it like three stars. And the reason is, well, I already knew these things. And I'm like, that doesn't take away from the merits of the book. That simply means you were beyond what the book had to teach you. You're not the audience. But I suppose that's the double-edged sort of customer reviews because they're honestly reviewing their experience yeah. with the product. And some customers are, they take more time and more care to be objective. But a lot of them are just going to be like, what did this do for me? What were my expectations going into this? And how did the product deliver? It's exactly about you know. the
1: expectation effect. Did they think yeah. it was going to help them when they were too advanced? Well, unfortunately,
0: it was at a lower level than what they needed. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, but this book was a very good reminder for me, it was, and it just like it crystallized this need to clarify things. So, as we like to do, is that like a there are ads game you're on? playing? No, it's
1: an ad. Oh, that's right. Because I didn't pay to. I wanted my, I wanted this tablet super cheap. I'm not paying to get rid of the ads quite yet. I How will later because that they're for? really annoying. It was Prime Day so I got this little tablet for like 30 bucks. That is insanity. Yeah, and then and then I got this case for 20 a couple days later and a keyboard. Still cheaper than like all the other tablets
0: that I could have purchased. Cuz you can take that to the coffee shop and like write on it with the keyboard, right? That is all I wanted it to do. You know you don't read on it? Oh, you read on a regular I read on Kindle. the white. I don't That's like right. reading on like digital screens like that. You know what? I like the electronic ink better. I used to like and okay, I feel like I'm in transition because I used to like reading on the iPad more because I really like the page turning animations. Oh yeah. But recently, I've been noticing that my eyes do kind of get fuzzy while reading the iPad screen. So I'm actually thinking about potentially going to paper white. I feel like I can I can just focus better
1: with those with those yeah. kind of pages. I don't know why.
0: The other dilemma I'm in is like I trucked through that book when I bought it on Audible and before that, uh, I was watching a CGP Gray video and he recommended a book in his ad and I went and bought it because it sounded really cool. It was all about oh, yeah. like the Silk Road and everything. So uh, I went and bought that and I listened to it. I think it was like 18 hours and I finished it in a week. So for me, like a long bike ride and an audiobook may actually be better than a real book in many cases. I mean, especially in this
1: kind of nonfiction. Gen- in this kind of genre this productivity genre like i I guess I for would I work. would be far more comfortable listening to this kind of book than listening to name of the wind
0: but that's because you're like much more into the details right well or yeah, like, yeah. Like i don't I don't like audiobooks things. in general
1: but I'm saying like I can see that it would be very good for nonfiction in particular
0: I honestly like narrative. you don't need to immerse into a world I honestly like narrative stuff better in audiobooks. I think we're just very different in that way because like I listened to that on audiobook to get through it and it was useful. But that book has like charts in it and has like the the comparison of like what's an essentialist gonna do in this situation versus what's a non-essentialist gonna do. that's true, I guess. And like the narrator did a good job at contrasting those. But I found that when I was reading the book, it was easier to really visually contrast than myself Mm -hmm. and to highlight things. Whereas when I'm listening to a fiction book or narrative nonfiction like um, American Kingpin, which I just finished, I really don't have a problem getting immersed in the story in the world. If you
1: listen to an audiobook though, you're probably doing something else. And if I'm doing something in the real world, it will distract me from the fake universe. Yeah, Usually I'm just on a long walk or bike, I want to be like so. 110% in the fake
0: universe. Okay. I want to be so there that I forget to eat. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean I I've definitely been there. But uh I feel like I have equally easy time getting into it when it's audio or print, but that's just me. Well,
1: I'm not just going to sit there and listen to it and not do anything else. I
0: don't I don't like the other activity that would yeah, go with it. Yeah, I wouldn't wanna do
1: that. That's why I don't like the second activity that I would do while reading. I only okay. want to read. And with an audiobook, I feel
0: like it invites a second activity. But maybe this is an illustration of how I'm not so focused compared to you. Yeah, maybe I'm <laughs> just more essentialist. I don't, I I don't just think I'd say am. this is probably not the lessons from the A book. non-essentialist diatribe. All right. So um, as we usually like to do with our book review or book analysis format, uh, each of us has picked three lessons from yes. the book. So obviously we're not going to go through the entire book. Though I do want to say like, I, I feel it might be useful to just give people like an overview of what the book goes over before we talk about our lessons. Okay. Just so they kind of get like a, an idea of what they would learn going into it. So I can just pull up the table of contents. So essentially this book, it defines like what an essentialist is, which is basically somebody who knows what their purpose is. They've clarified it and they say no to basically everything else. They have boiled their life down to the essentials. Um, The first part is, you know, figuring out what's the mindset of an essentialist. Then it goes into how do you actually discern what he calls the trivial many from the vital few, uh, Next, there is the eliminate part. So how to actually get rid of those trivial things from your life. And lastly, how do you execute on the things that are essential? And I did like how he really focused in on how do you build habits and structures into your life to make executing on the essential things easy or effortless, or at least not so hard. You shouldn't have to be trying
1: super crazy hard every day if you can make it something that
0: feels natural and get the same progress. Mm -hmm. So I found that helpful. Um, Now- I have a quote from a different book that I wanted to share before we got into the lessons here. And this actually may be my favorite quote ever now. It competes with another one because there's a Bruce Lee quote that I really like, which is the Bruce Lee quote, I believe, is um, adapt what is useful, reject what is useless and add what is specifically your own. And I love that quote because it gives it grounds me in how I apply advice from other people. And it reminds me to to think about like, if somebody's telling me to do something, is it useful for me now? Is it useful for them now? Am I at the same stage they're at? You know, we talked about this before. Yeah. Where I'm like, you know, beginning stages of a business, obviously DIY ethic is much more useful than, and the late game where delegating is much more useful because you have more money and less time. Uh, But this quote is, it's right up there. This comes from the I Ching which is a Chinese text from like the 8th century BCE. So very, very, very old. Um, I learned about it in the 33 Strategies of War. And the quote goes, Unlimited possibilities are not suited to man. If they existed, his life would only dissolve in the boundless. To become strong, a man's life needs the limitations ordained by duty and voluntarily accepted. The individual attains significance as a free spirit only by surrounding himself with these limitations and by determining for himself what his duty is. And I felt like that quote really kind of boils down what the essentialist mindset
1: is. So our like, greatest freedom
0: is to choose our own limits. Yeah. And he states that more concretely in the book. Like, with limitations, your possibilities become limitless because you are now focused and your contribution to the world can become so much greater. That without limitations with creative work, how often exactly. you're trying
1: to work on some like a like a song or a piece of art or something. And if it's just I don't know, just make something good. It, it's going to take you forever to come up with the right thing. But if they're exactly. like, make something good, but I really need a lot of red, a lot of red tones. Yeah. And also it's it needs to be Christmassy. Well, now you know exactly what direction
0: to go in. So or if I just tell you like, better. hey, Martin, freestyle. And you'd be like, oh, I don't know. Uh, what should I freestyle? I don't know. Yeah. But I remember a while ago, I was like, all right, let's make a rap song that's only about eating vegetables. Yeah. That, and like that, we that came would, up with lyrics in like really half easy. an hour. Just I think immediate. we did it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because you can just pull, you pull something not from everywhere around you in infinite space. You
0: know, you can't do that. It's mm-hmm. hard. It is definitely. Yeah, and I find that it, it's something that I try to to implement to my video making process. Like, okay, this video will have five main tips and I'm gonna try to like limit it to 10 minutes or something like that. That does help because I can take a topic and if there aren't limits on it, I can just noodle around and research for hours and then I come up with a yeah. zillion things and it seems uninspired and I'm like, it's just an info dump. So what is really truly yeah, essential? Yeah,
1: you don't just want to read. Here's basically, here's the text from the top four Google results. Here we go.
0: <laughs> We're just going to go into it. We're just going to read them. Yeah. So my first lesson that I took from this book, um, I kind of combined a couple of different sections into one like big lesson. I'll allow it. Which is that you need to really work to clarify your mission or purpose and then apply very selective criteria to the opportunities that come to you with that clarity you've gained. So basically he talks about priority. And this is another quote from the book. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. It was meant, uh, it meant the very first or prior thing. And it stayed singular for the next 500 years. Only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term and start talking about priorities. And uh, he he talked about like how companies have like priority one through five or 20 priorities. And they're like, all these are important. And I feel like I've done that before. Maybe you've gotten this feeling from me when I just like text you at 9 p.m. and I'm like, we should do this thing. And yeah, we should some, do this Sometimes thing.
1: I'm like, yeah, we should probably focus on one thing and then do it. Honestly, last and night- And then focus on a new thing.
0: Last night I came across uh, these like things you can do in Google. I think they're called like rich snippet features where you can have like- Oh, I see what you're saying. Like knowledge graph stuff. And you can have like, we've already implemented reviews, like the stars yeah. for the site, but you can do so much more. You can like- make your company logo show up in Google and you can like make your preferred site name show up and your social media links and all these things. And it's all like this JSON data you can add into the website. And my first inclination, I opened every tab for every feature they have and I was like, all right, Martin should do all these things tomorrow. And then I was like, wait a minute, don't we already have a priority? Yeah. This isn't the priority. Yeah. So I just wrote it down, it's like a task in a sauna with no due date and it's like, all right, put that off, that's not essential right now. Um, so he basically says like, you need to you need to view everything as a trade-off and clarify what your real purpose is. And he made really clear that a lot of people he talks to always say, I'm pretty clear on what my purpose is. I'm pretty clear on what the main mission of my business is or the my main priority right now is. But there's a huge difference between pretty clear and very clear. Because with pretty clear, when an opportunity comes up, the benefits of it might be tempting enough for you to take it. Because you're not... resolutely clear on what you need to be doing. So like if I was pretty clear on, oh, I think I'm pretty clear I'm supposed to make videos, I'm supposed to be making podcasts, and then somebody says, hey, come speak at my school, I might take that up because I might get paid several thousand dollars, like speaking is fun, there's definitely benefits to it. But when I'm really clear, we need to get to one video per week, one podcast per week, and then start making a course, that is our priority, then I know, all right, I can't speak. Yeah. Because I know 100% if I take a speaking gig, there will be no video that week. I, I know from history. So with the clarity, it becomes a lot easier to see
1: what are the negative sides of this thing coming up? What's the trade-off? Because yeah. every second that you spend doing something that isn't your mission, your essential most cool thing, mm-hmm. is a second you could have
0: spent on that most essential thing. Exactly. And he, he takes care to mention that um, finding clarity is not something that can be done easily. You may have to hash it out with a business partner or somebody that knows you well. You may have to sit down and write it out. And you may have to do some like root cause analysis on it. Because originally when I was thinking like, what is my one priority? I need clarity. I'm like, well, it can't be the videos because we also do the podcast. And I don't want to kill the podcast. Yeah. And you shouldn't over apply this and just kill everything. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that is one thing that was brought up in some Goodreads reviews is like, they were mentioning there, there's all these people who don't do this and are still super successful in their lives. So it's not like you have to become some like single-minded monk who literally only no. practices Kung Fu no, I like or Leonard's literally only does videos. Piano. I'm not yeah. going to just throw the piano away. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's more of like a mindset that you try to apply selectively, not universally and, you know, like a binary mindset. Yeah, you I, should use it for things that overwhelm you. They're making it hard to figure out what to do. You shouldn't just say, I have to do one thing or else. But when he said, think very hard about clarification and just noted how difficult it was, I was like, okay, I need to think deeper about this. It isn't that I need to focus on videos or focus on podcasts. What is it? I think what it is, is I need to focus on getting that uh, consistent schedule created. And to do that, I need to focus on creating time for for me to make content to be able to read, to be able to research, and to be able to write. Yeah. So my number one priority right now is setting up systems in my business, like this new studio that's heavily automated, like we can literally say a command and everything turns on. Yeah. Um, Hiring new people, training them better. I've been working on like writing guides for people that are, if somebody quits and somebody new has to come in, they'll be able to read the guide and they can get up to speed real fast. I've been working on like having Kayla do more and more on the admin side so I have to do less. I just finally, finally delegated some of my email to her. I was like very resistant for I a long time. Oh that was hard. It was very I'm, hard. I'm proud of you, son. Um, I found an app called Front, and it makes the delegation really easy. So what I ended up doing was I ended up creating like a secondary College Geek email address that is not for talking to people. It's just for like financial things and things that I want to deal with. Yeah. So that way, like the main Thomas at collegeinfogeek.com, she can help me to... You know, if there's like newsletters I need to be unsubscribed from, we can, she can do that. And if there's questions that have been asked a million times, she can archive them. If there's like questions that I don't have time to answer, she can at least get them into Trello so we'll see them for podcasts. Yeah. I'm no longer dealing with that. So that is my my clarified purpose now is create the space. Yeah. That is what I need to do because once I can do that, then I know my clarified purpose is find uh, create the habit of making great content Enough so that we have something every week on the podcast and on the videos, on the video channel. Yeah. So right now, like the content
1: itself is not the essential mission. It is a byproduct of the essential mission. Exactly. Which right now is to fuel the root of all of your creation, which is your
0: time to think and reflect and research. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a goal, but to achieve that goal, I have to create space first. Yeah. So I know like, okay, I must do that and this is where i want to work into the selective criteria thing he says, he says you need to view everything as a trade-off and this reminds me of the any benefit approach concept oh, yeah. that cal Newport talked about in deep work where when you're looking at a tool it's so tempting or you know tool opportunity whatever it is it's so tempting to think this has these benefits like i should be on snapchat because i can connect with my audience in a new way and i can send stupid snaps to to fans or whatever, like it seems to have a benefit. Or if you're a farmer, like a hay baler would let me bale hay so much faster. But you have to think from like an essentialist mindset, what do I give up if I buy this hay baler or if I start using Snapchat? Well, I'm fragmenting my attention or I'm spending a bunch of money on a machine that needs to be stored, I don't have room in the barn for that, it's gotta have maintenance and upkeep. And honestly, my main crop isn't hay. I could easily buy that and still have a good profit margin. Like all these things come to the equation. So when you're clarified, you uh, you can apply selective criteria better. So in a book he talks about when you have an opportunity presented to you, sit down with it and write out two sets of criteria. You have your minimum criteria, which is like just the bare minimum for it to be even considered. And then you have your extreme criteria. What is like, what would make this opportunity absolutely ideal? Like the best thing ever. So the minimum criteria have to be met. Like if you have three, all three need to be met. And say you got three ideal criteria as well. In the book, he says, if two out of the three are met, then it's a good uh, opportunity. But if not, then it's not. So the minimum criteria isn't enough. It needs to be ideal. Yeah, it needs to be super awesome or nothing. Mm-hmm. I really liked the example of the, uh, the VITSO 606 shelving Oh, yeah, that he talked about where they were like, they're super, super selective in the hiring process. And he told a story about how they had one person who was a great candidate. They had talked to multiple employees. They all liked him. So they took him on like a test day and did a great job installing the shelving at a client's house. But at the end of the day, he like threw his tools into the toolbox instead of like carefully placing them back. And because of that, they didn't hire him. Yeah. Because they're like this, the way that he treats his tools indicates that he doesn't operate with the level of care that we really, truly value. So, so something that, that a lot of people would look over. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, the one thing that I wanted to add to this part, actually a couple things. Um, he talks about how it's like, it's very difficult to say no when opportunities come up because there's like this social pressure to say, yes, we have normative conformity. We want to basically conform to what we are expected to do. And that's very deeply psychologically rooted, but I liked the fact that he stated this outright. When you say no, yes, people are going to be disappointed. They might even be mad. But later on, once those emotions have dissipated, they respect you more because they come to the realization that you had a reason for saying no. I mean, obviously, if they know you're just like sitting around playing video games all day, then sure, they're not going to respect you. But if they can see you have a mission, you have something you're producing that's great, then the reason you said no is because You really wanted to focus on that thing and that garners respect. So that negative emotion from saying no is temporary and you have to just learn to get over it. Yeah, okay. Now the one thing I wanted to mention here is like when you're a student, I don't think you always have clarity of purpose because you haven't explored enough yet. And I think we may have talked about this in the extracurriculars episode from last week where if you are like a freshman, right? You're coming into college you don't know what you should be doing yet. So instead of like saying I'm just not going to do anything and I'm just going to do whatever I'm doing right now, you explore and then strategically quit. Yeah. So your I think purpose if you're
1: like this find your purpose. Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, like that's the thing. Like it's the main like thing is figuring purpose. out what the main thing is. So if you don't already know what your main thing is, you don't have clarity of purpose yet, you're still like I don't know what I want to do with my life, then go explore, but be willing to strategically quit if it's not your big thing. Yeah, I think he even mentions somewhere in the book that essentialists
1: don't just, they don't not try things. Mm -hmm. They just, they try a lot of things, in fact, more so than the average person who's not being an essentialist because they need to be very sure about what they're going to dedicate themselves
0: to. That is true. He did talk about how- You can't just dedicate yourself to like the first thing you try
1: necessarily.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You explore more because you're very deliberate about once you've picked the thing, you're going to go all in on it. Yeah. So that's my first lesson. What is yours? All right, my first lesson- Is uh, I really liked
1: when you talked about the endowment effect, first of all, and then how to deal with it. What's that again? So the endowment effect is when we value things that are ours more than we would if they weren't ours.
0: Oh, okay, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's say for some reason you want to buy a mug and this mug is mine. I like this mug. I don't want to stop owning this mug, so I'm probably going to charge you more to take this mug from me mm-hmm. than it would cost you at a store to get the same exact thing and for me to replace the same exact thing. Yeah. Because personal ownership increases its value. Humans do that.
0: Well, I mean, that Sailor Moon mug is dope. It is and pretty, it's pretty you're dope. You're going to have to pry that thing from my cold, dead hands. It's okay. I got a different Sailor Moon mug <laughs> at home. <laughs> That's true. You do. Yeah. And they're on the beach. It's better. Oh, okay.
1: But I digress. <laughs> I don't even know where those came from. I bought them for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot that you, can't, you had those. I like, bought them from a comic a, shop. Okay. <laughs> Regardless, I understand the endowment effect, but I like his questions to kind of ask to help you get out of it. To sort of get past this mental thing that most mm-hmm. humans are going to succumb to. So, one – In the case of a physical possession, if you find it very hard, even if you're just getting rid of things, if you're trying to cull your closet of nonsense, instead of asking how much do I value this thing, ask how much would I pay to buy this thing right now if I did not already have it? Yeah. If you wouldn't buy it again, if if I light your shirt on fire and it's your favorite shirt, maybe you'll buy it again. That's probably important to you. Mm -hmm. But if you're like, I'd probably just wear other shirts then that shirt wasn't that important to you. Yeah. I mean, unless it's irreplaceable, then this example doesn't work because you right. can't buy another one. But then I also really like this when you put it in perspective to more abstract things instead of something obvious like a cup. So if I didn't have this opportunity, what would I give to have it? Mm. If somebody says to you, hey, do you wanna, you wanna come speak at this thing? Your first inclination might be, I don't wanna disappoint them. So maybe you're leaning yes, at least probably yeah. by default. But you need to think, if they didn't just say this, would I have been willing to reach out to them? Would I have done any work to make this opportunity happen? Did yeah. I want it? If not, that opportunity is probably not that important, mm-hmm. and you just happened to cross something that maybe you shouldn't take. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful because it's, it's even easier to think about. So like this mug, concrete things, they have a dollar cost. Mm-hmm. It's easier to apply that thought. But with abstract things saying, what would I give up for this opportunity? Yeah, exactly. I thought, I thought that was really cool.
0: When I was in, uh, I think it was my junior year. Throughout all of college, I was in the honors program. But and it was useful during the freshman year. But as it went on, I started to realize there were requirements that I were going to have to do. like I was going to have to go to a few extra classes and then do like a big honors project to graduate with honors. Which, for my purposes, would have meant being able to walk across the stage with a gold cord around my neck. Gotta get that That's gold it. chain. I haven't used my resume since graduating. It's been four years. Like my resume is online, so other people can look at it. I have not ever had to give it to somebody because I'm self-employed. Yeah, and that was my goal during my senior year, and was my my vision for maybe something I could do during my junior year. So. I didn't really think about it in these terms, but it makes sense. I ended up quitting honors because I realized that working on CIG and spending my time on that was more essential, more important. And it was kind of like that mental calculus. Do I give this up to gain more time or not? Yeah. But actually thinking about it in those terms would have made it even easier. If I wasn't in honors as a junior, would I have gone through the whole application process just to be able to graduate with that gold cord? Probably not. Yeah. And that's just me. I'm not trying to tell you that honors programs are not useful. They may be useful for other people. I am a very rare case of somebody who went straight from college to full-time uh, full time self-employed business. Yeah. Most people are not doing that. So most people have to do a little bit more impressing with their resumes. Might be worth it. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that program was probably important to you when you joined in the first place. It's when I, yeah. something that's essential at one point in time is not necessarily essential later.
0: It's true, and for a lot of things, I think he even talks about this in the book. Yeah, people just do things because they've always done it. I think he was talking about how there was a there was one company where he, he went in there, and they had like this really, really convoluted, difficult hiring procedure that they did. And they went to the current HR person. and They were like, "Did you put this into place?" And she's like, "No, I think the previous person did."
1: Yeah, and she had been there for
0: ten years. They were just they were just doing it <laughs> just because. And they're it like, "Why good. are we doing this?" Yeah, and so I didn't have this in my lessons, but he talks about something called running a reverse pilot. We're like, you know how TV companies will put out a pilot episode that's lower yeah. budget or they don't produce the whole show just to see how it does? Yeah. The reverse pilot is, what if you just tried removing something that you are doing currently and then you see what your what the response is? So like if we wanted to do a reverse pilot, we could say, all right, what if we published once every two weeks? Like what would be the response? Would the listenership go down? Would people complain? I think they would because they probably like seeing us every week. But I've actually done this with my videos. I've done reverse pilots where it's like, all right, what if I don't do this specific little stupid virtual lighting within my animations? Or what if I use the same backgrounds in some animations as in other videos rather than making everything from scratch every single time? Or what if I don't use quite as many swish pan transitions and instead just do hard cuts? They're not as technically proficient, but will anyone care? And I've realized like, nope, no one cares. Yeah, (laughs) Nobody cares (laughs) except me. So that's an example of reverse pilot. Remove something you think might not be essential and see what happens. Yeah, and I mean, you could have brought it back if it was essential. That's the important part. Yeah, people were like, man, Tom, your editing quality has really gone down. Okay, I'll bring it back, sure. But clearly- you know, having a zillion swish pans versus hard cuts doesn't
1: matter. Yeah, and you likely would have thought that was essential had you not tested it. I'm Mm -hmm. sure before you were like, but these are awesome. It's, it's, they need the highest quality. And without testing, maybe
0: you'd still be doing it all the time. One really good example, bigger example of reverse pilot is I am no longer editing my videos. Yeah. We have editors who have done the past five, I want to say. I've done one in between just because of a time scheduling issue. But that was something I always believed. Like My editing is essential to the success of the videos. Well, let's do a reverse pilot. Let's have them edit a couple of videos and see what the response is. And the response has been great. And yeah, I mean, they didn't edit exactly the way that I would edit uh, from the beginning, but every single time we've done a video, I've given them more feedback. I've been like, hey, I would do this this way. Uh, sometimes I go in there and do it and then like show them to contrast. And every single time, they get better and they are ab- able to add their own flair. Yeah. And the channel is doing better than ever. So for me, editing is not actually essential. What's essential for me is coming up with the ideas and writing it in a funny way, you know, entertaining way. Yeah. I don't need to be editing in swish pans or easing curves or whatever I used to do.
1: No, probably not. Yeah. But yeah, that was, uh, that's my first lesson. Okay. It's just uh, how to say no to opportunities and judge them more objectively um, what is your second lesson?
0: My second one is the uh, the whole what's important now thing. That is written <laughs> on my whiteboard right now. Is it? Yes, it is. This may be the most important for me. And I struggle with it so much. So he just he basically just like says straight up in the book, try to focus on what's important now. Because we're always thinking ahead to what we're gonna do later and not being in the moment. And that causes a lot of stress and it causes us to not perform as well as we could in the current moment. And he talks about how in, in the ancient Greek language, there were two words for time. There was chronos, which meant like chronological time, clocks and grandfatherly figures and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then kairos. But kairos means like the opportune time or the now. And contrasting those kind of makes you realize that you will really only ever have now. You don't have tomorrow. Like, because once tomorrow will get here, it will be now. Yeah. So I try to think about this. And I think he even talked about like, there was a there was a rugby coach who had coached his team to 418 wins with only 10 losses over like a decade or something like that. So they win a lot. And their motto was, we always win. But beyond just, we always win our games, win was an acronym. What's important now? Don't be thinking about the play that's coming up next. Think about executing this play really well don't be thinking about the playoff game happening in a month from now, think about this exhibition game right now. And uh, I actually have a book I picked up from the Boulder Bookstore. It's a book that kind of like combines um, like Lao Tzu and like Eastern mm. philosophy with sports performance. And it talks about how a lot of the most elite long distance runners in the world, like ultra marathoners and racers, they, um, a lot of them will not do well in their qualifiers and never even make it to the uh, like the big race eventually really sometimes like they'll get there sometimes but like the next year they won't even you'd think they'd make it to the finals but they don't even qualify and often the reason is they were so focused on that big final race they didn't even prepare well for this little one that didn't seem so important in their minds yeah they didn't stretch well or they weren't really just in the moment focused on performing as best as they could so and actually, if you, I think Michael Phelps was mentioned in the book. Yeah, I think He talks so. about how it's like he has this routine of being so focused, so in the moment, not thinking about anything else, just putting the videotape, think about winning and doing it. And this was very important for me. Even this morning, I struggled with it. I woke up at 6 a.m. this morning. I went to the gym immediately. And as I was in the gym, I was like, all right, later on, I got to go get breakfast. And then we got to go to the tea shop and do some writing. And then we got to record later. And I was like, you know what? That doesn't matter right now. What matters is focusing on this set of bench press. Yeah. Do these five reps. Yeah, you're overwhelming yourself with the future. Exactly. Which is gonna cut your performance now. And what I found is it makes me less happy because I'm in the gym like being like, man, I wish I could finish this workout so I could go get my work done. But the work is going to come eventually. Yeah. So focus on the workout. Focus on the lift or focus on walking to the grocery store. I think you and I were talking this morning about how like, You want a new bike to get to the gardens faster, but you might just walk anyway because you enjoy the walk there.
1: Yeah. Like I don't care that it's going to take longer because the point is when I'm walking and I know it's going to take a while, I'm not impatient. I'm just like, oh, I'm going for a walk. And at some point, a destination will appear. But Mm -hmm. if I'm in a car, I get in the car and I'm like, all right, about to get to that destination. I'm immediately thinking of where I'm supposed to be going. So I'm driving. But I'm more likely to be impatient because I don't inherently enjoy driving. Mm -hmm. So I'm just like, when am I going to get here? Traffic's taking forever. Whereas if I was on a bike and a bunch of stuff kept happening, like if uh, once I had to stop my bike and wait for like a hundred geese to cross the street (laughs) and I wasn't mad, I was just like, well, this is interesting because I was patient. I was on a bike enjoying myself. I wasn't in a rush to get to the future. Mm -hmm. And dwelling in the future or the past is a really good recipe for being unhappy. Yeah. Because (laughs) it's just you you can't if you're spending every single day planning, then you never really had any days to plan in the first place. Exactly. You didn't do anything with any of them. Yeah. And contrarily, let's say let's say I wake up. I've got my morning routine. I try to exercise, meditate, make a cup of tea. Let's say I wake up a little late and I'm I'm starting off stressed. I could either be like, oh, no, I have to do all these things. I'm in such a rush. What am I going to do? Oh, God, I'm behind today. Or I could just be like, all right. I already woke up late. There's nothing I can do about that. Which of these things, if I have to do any of them still, is the most high value? And if none of them are higher value than what I should be doing at, at this exact time, maybe I woke up late enough that I should just start working now. Mm-hmm. What is important right now is probably not dwelling on failure and yeah. getting overwhelmed and then letting that affect the quality of the rest of my day. Mm-hmm.
0: What's I that can, thing you always say? like don't, don't fail twice or something like that? uh i don't remember something similar like if you fail just focus on the trend not the failure yeah i think it's
1: from like um it's from a blog post somebody where it was like don't make the second mistake i think it's a james clear thing okay where if you fail one day of your i'm gonna do this thing every day goal or whatever Mm -hmm. that's not a pattern yet that's just one day don't fail day two Mm -hmm. day two sets into place a small pattern so basically, you can choose to fail once in your day and then say, the rest of my day is going to be good. I already failed. So be it. Now I'm going to succeed. Or you can dwell on your failure all day long, push off everything, be late at every single thing all day long, Yep. and then go to bed feeling horrible, maybe late because you had to finish that stuff. And now that you've gone to bed late, maybe you'll wake up late again tomorrow. <laughs> and tomorrow will also be the same thing. And then the pattern starts. You, you need to cut the failure at the
0: initial failure and just, mm-hmm. just it's gone. Let go. Yep. Decide to cut it. Didn't you say that like decide, the root of decide is to like cut or- Or kill. Eliminate or kill. Like the side in decide means, it's the same
1: side in homicide actually. Oh, okay. And decide means to like cut away or to separate. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I mean, it doesn't literally mean that now, but etymologically it comes from basically that meaning. Gotcha. So it's cool. I
0: I think that this lesson is is very much like an overall mindset thing. But he did provide one particularly concrete tip that is I found useful. When you feel like you have a million things you need to do right now, write them all down, and then for each one, apply the criteria. Is this important right now? Or is it just something that's kind of jumbling around in my head that I feel like I need to get out of my head and done? So then constantly just be crossing things off. This isn't important right now. This isn't important right now until you arrive at the one or few things that are important right now. Maybe it's like calling your mom or something. Yeah. Or he gave the example. He's he has a speech the next day. He's got all these things he wants to do, but it's night. It's you know almost bedtime. What is important right now? Call my wife and kids and iron my shirt so it's easier in the morning to get ready. That's it. Then I can I can prep for you know I can like look over my slides again in the car on the way to the presentation or you know whatever it is I can do it later on. Yeah,
1: and I've actually done that a few times mm-hmm. since rereading the book. Like just write them all out on my whiteboard and say. Uh, that one can probably be pushed off with no damage. It won't do anything. Mm-hmm. That one too, that one too. That one's just like laundry. I can do my laundry in the morning. It's gonna yeah. be, I'm fine. I have clothes. It's yep. not a main concern.
0: I actually, today in the gym, um, in like the rest period between sets, I created a note in my Evernote just called non-essential ideas. And it's just a bullet list. And I'm just gonna put things there. Because yeah, often, like, often it's like, often it's like it doesn't need to be done now. It just, I need to make sure that I don't forget it and I need it out of my head. And like a lot of times there's a zillion tabs on my computer for that reason. It's like, I feel like that needs to be done. But if I just write the idea down or save the link, I can close the tab and it doesn't matter. That's a good idea. I don't need to do that for that. Yeah. We don't need to do all those Google search things right now, but but I I do want to remember. And
1: we're like, what, what could be essential? I don't really know right now. Is there a new thing? Then you could find it. Maybe that's it.
0: Well, I mean, like one of of my essential purposes on a long-term scale is to make collegeinfogeek.com like the greatest and most easy to use and best website for study tips and for student advice ever made. And that does include giving it all the cool Google features that are gonna give it higher rankings and more placement and all that stuff. So it's not like those things are non-essential. They are just not essential now. Yeah. So I don't wanna forget them, but we won't do them now. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good idea. All right, on to
1: yours. Lesson. Number two for me is about zero-based budgeting. Mm. And this comes from the eliminate portion of the book, getting rid of the non-essential mm-hmm. and, and helping you. It's it's really going to help you get rid of things that you would hesitate to get rid of, I yeah. think. And I thought this was awesome. And the concept comes from business. So Heck yeah, business. basically, let's say you've got some department in your business and I don't remember a good example for this, but you've got the you've got a department. It's it's a really dumb department, and it's been going on for twenty years. So nobody wants to close it down, and nobody ever questions its budget because it's been there for twenty years. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually a huge drain on money, and it would be smarter to start from nothing and get rid of it. So how do you do that? Is instead of starting off with the default budget, let's say this budget now is it's your time, it's your metaphorical budget. Yeah. Instead of starting off now with Basically, what before was, let's go from there, start from Mm -hmm. literally nothing and re-justify everything you can think of. So if I wanted to refresh my life tomorrow, I shouldn't start from, okay, well, I'm already doing piano and language and college info geek and exercise and I like tea and all these things. I shouldn't start from that. I should start from nothing. And then I should say, okay, do I like piano right now? Is that going to bring value to me? Yes. Yes. Is, is language still bringing value to me? Yes. Yeah. And if it's, if it's not clear or it turns out it's not as cool as it used to be, then I shouldn't be doing it anymore just because I did before. Mm-hmm. And so I liked this enough that I went to the Botanic Gardens here and I kind of just sat on a bench by the bonsai display and I thought about this for like an hour, just writing down on a little notebook. And I actually found some interesting things that hmm. uh, aren't essential anymore. I like assumed what? they were. So two things. One, video games as a category are no longer essential to my happiness. Reading okay. as a category, for example, is essential. Mm-hmm. I love reading in general. The concept of reading more books and actively reading them is fun to me. But it used to be that video games in general were really important to me. Mm-hmm. Buying new games, beating all of those games, playing playing all of them. And now... That's just not the case. I don't really care if I beat half the games that are even sitting in new wrappers just because I bought them last year sometime. Yeah. I want to play Breath of the Wild again. That's essential because I'm actively enjoying it. It is bringing me value. Mm-hmm. But I have that Crash Bandicoot thing, the reboot. And, well, it's not a reboot. It's a port that's remastered. Yeah. And it's fun, but is it important to me to beat that just because I have a list of games that are out, like on my to-beat list? Yeah. Not in the slightest. That, so I don't care if I ever list. beat it. I, sh- I don't care if I never beat that game. I played a few levels. That's what I wanted
0: was a little hit of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And that's all that matters. The two beat list is not essential. Yeah. And yeah. I could see like you getting mired in the details there because when you buy a game, you're like, well, I spent my money. So I obviously should get my money's worth and beat the game. It's like sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. But when you ask yourself, like from zero based budgeting perspective, what is it that I truly want from this thing? It isn't to beat the whole game. It's like you said. I just want some nostalgia. Yeah. And for me, that could be playing three worlds and then being done. I'm not going to
1: start my zero-based budget right now and go, hmm, beating the Crash Bandicoot remaster, is that a (laughs) high-value task for my life? No. No, it's not. Yeah. It's actually not. And another thing is actually that photography is no longer essential to me, but I do think it will probably be essential in autumn. I think it will be seasonally Mm -hmm. essential Because autumn is when I'm inspired to go outside and explore and
0: what I want to take pictures of. Okay. But I've been thinking about that with figure skating. Oh, yeah? Because when I started, it was like, this is my sport now. I clearly have to go to practice every day forever. And in the summer, I don't want to. I want to go ride my bike. I've actually come to the same conclusion about lifting weights. When I grew up, my dad was like, you lift three times a week, you do three sets at least of every exercise, 10 reps, or you can do like a five by five if you're doing power routine or whatever it is. So growing up and even into my twenties, it was like, all right, to do, a, you know, if you're going to be working out, you go to the gym three times a week, you do three sets at least. And then I kind of started thinking about that. I'm like, do I really care about getting super strong or, you know, what what, it was, what is it that I really care about? And it's more like, I want to be versatile. I want to be healthy. I want to be able to climb mountains and ski and I want to be able to go out and enjoy physical activity. What does it do that I enjoy? I enjoy like playing DDR and dancing. I enjoy cycling and I enjoy like really technical stuff like skiing and figure skating and skateboarding and stuff like that. And I do enjoy being fit, being muscular and being somewhat strong. So I'm not going to cut working out, but I don't want to be in the gym for an hour and a half. So I go in there and I do two sets. Yeah. And I really do value flexibility. So I spend like 15 minutes stretching but if I do three sets and fifteen minutes, I'm there too long. Yes, yeah, so I don't you want to be two, but you can no longer justify three.
1: Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean it didn't used to be essential. Yeah, it so might have
0: been. A sen- I used to go to powerlifting competition uh, competitions back yeah. then. You got to put the time in. You got to do the two minute rest uh, bef- between sets so you can actually hit your numbers. But Now it's like I don't want to rest two minutes between sets. Yeah, I want to okay. like I'll, so I do a circuit. I'm just like uh, straight from pull ups to dips to bent over row, no rest. Because I'm in and out. That's what I want to do. Yeah. And for me, photography was
1: clearly essential during like the peak of my injury. Mm -hmm. Back when I had it, I couldn't really do a lot of programming, a lot of language, a lot of writing. Yeah. And photography was immensely essential as being the thing that I could focus on and enjoy when basically everything else I liked and all my instruments had been taken away from me. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it was very important then. But I have those things back now. Mm -hmm. I can play piano again. So photography doesn't, just because I spent a bunch of money on a camera and took a bunch of classes, doesn't mean that I have to like take 10 photos every week and maintain some sort of level of mastery. It's not that important now. Yeah, exactly. And I just thought it's really hard for me to let go of things that I valued in the past. Yeah, it is. So this is a a very important lesson Mm -hmm. for me.
0: I still feel guilty about I haven't been skating like to the rink in, I don't know, four months. Yeah, I felt horribly guilty
1: when I quit mm Polyglot. I I felt guilty when I had to stop doing language stuff for a while, when I stopped taking German and Chinese. Like, I'm a very much long-term commitment kind of person. Yep. So this helps me break out of that when Mm -hmm. I'm committing to too many things by far and I have to cut something without
0: feeling like I've made a horrible mistake. Mm -hmm. And right now, I love going for hour-long bike rides. Like, I'll put in 18 miles and listen to an audiobook and it's awesome. When the winter hits... That's not so much of an option. So possibly I will start going to the reek again or I'll take a parkour class. Like I have a lot of options, but right now it's like, I really like cycling and hiking. So I'm going to put my time into those along with gym time. And that's good enough for me. So my third lesson comes from the execution part of the book. So how do you start actually being able to execute on the things that are essential once you define them? And uh, it was the the idea of adding buffers into your schedule to allow you to have time to do these things. So a good example he gave is he was trying to, he was trying to explain the concept of buffers to his kids and he kind of put it in terms of a question. Like, how could we get there in the car? And he's like, how can we get from where we are now to our destination without stopping? And the kids immediately are like, all right, well, we're gonna have to start driving slower so there's a lot of space in between the next car Or that if a light turns red, you don't get to it really fast and have to stop. You can kind of just slowly roll through it and wait for it to turn green because you have to have a buffer. And he says like a lot of us are going basically the equivalent of 100 miles an hour with a car right in front of us with like a one foot gap. And if that car makes one mistake, we're gonna crash. And that's how we a lot of times we live our lives. Like we'll be like, oh, I can get to work in five minutes. So we stay on our computer or we keep working until like five minutes before work starts. But then like, oh no, there's traffic. Or I didn't realize it would take time to get down to my car. Or I forgot my sunglasses, I gotta run up and get them. Now I'm late, now I'm stressed. And this happens like all the time for people. So one thing he uh, prepares or he he recommends doing is basically adding the fudge ratio that I talked about in my how to not be late video. If you have an estimate for how long it's gonna take to do something, add 50% to it. And I actually did that uh, yesterday. And oh, yeah. you know what? It wasn't even enough. No, like yesterday, I I time. literally went on Google Calendar and I blocked out our day. And I was like, all right, I think my my original calculation for being at the tea shop and writing the notes for this episode and doing admin stuff was like an hour and a half. So I made it three hours, eight to 11. And then I was like, all right, I bet you we can finish building the studio In two hours, or no, in one hour. So I made it two hours. Did not. And then I gave us two hours for recording the podcast. Usually takes an hour, but I was like, all right, I'm gonna give it two hours because we might have to set the studio up or whatever. And then I gave myself two hours to edit and put the video out. And still, it actually took us the whole day to to finish this studio. Like, I mean, eight to 11, we were at the coffee shop. I did. I got that one accurate. Like, we were finished at 11. So I was like, sweet, my estimates are great. And we got back here and I'm like, all right, we can do this in two hours. And then of course we realized, oh no, we need these things that we have to go to Office Depot for. And there's a zillion more things than we anticipated. Yeah. And then like we realized the lighting back here, we didn't like it. So we had to completely like redo it and figure out a new solution. And that took probably an hour, you know, and it's done now, but it took all of Monday. Yeah. So I wanted to have that podcast out yesterday and it's what now, 1.14 and we're still recording it. Yeah. The next day. Whoops. So, you know, and that's fine because I have also been trying not to overload my weeks from lessons I've learned from this book, but it just goes to show you, even when you have that fudge ratio, sometimes it's not enough. Yeah. So you got to build that. He also talked about, um, oh, actually, so I want to talk a little bit more about the whole planning thing. So, like I said, I haven't planned a ton to this week because I don't want to be rushing and stressed, but even more important was last weekend. My brother came to visit and I haven't seen my brother since March. So f- almost five months. Yeah. Cause he lives back in Iowa. So he came to visit and I was like, all right, Brian, what do you want to do? And he just texts back one word, mountains. And I'm like, all right. And you know, him coming to Denver, he only had one full day in Denver because he has to get back home for work. And I'm like, man, I just, there's so much I want to show him. I want to take him to the cool arcade and I want to take him to a favorite restaurant and I want to show him downtown and also go to the mountains. And I realized, like, if I created this crazy itinerary for us, then if we're out in the mountains for too long, we're going to be stressed. Like, oh, man, is there time to go do these things? So I scrapped it all. I just said, all right, if we do nothing else, I'm going to give you an awesome hiking experience. We're going to go climb a mountain. It's going to be amazing. And, well, I mean, you came with us. It was awesome. It was pretty cool. We literally went to the top of a mountain, 3,000 feet of elevation gain. We were, like, on jagged rocks at the top, It was
1: super cool. Did some irresponsible climbing.
0: Did some irresponsible climbing. And I think we were on the trailhead at 7.30 in the morning, which was later than I wanted it to be, but it was fine. Another example. (laughs) I don't think we got back to the car until two, I want to say. So we were out there for six and a half hours, you know, but because we had nothing else planned, it was fine. We went and got food and came back and just chilled. It was great. Plus everyone was super dead. So oh, yeah everybody was, was dead. I was glad there weren't a whole ton of plans because we would have had to cancel them because everyone was just like physically dead from the hike. The other thing he talks about is um, extreme preparation and I really like this concept. prepare for everything. That's what I try to do with the studio. They're like for for our video lights. there are extra light bulbs in that closet that I ordered months ago. I have no indication that these are gonna burn out soon, but if they do, we ain't wait we're not waiting. We can still make videos. Yeah. And he talks about the uh the race to the South Pole back in the early 1900s uh, was between Roald uh Rold Am- Amundsen, I think he has how you pronounce it? And I think he was from Norway, I want to say. And then Robert Falcon Scott, who was an Englishman. Um Scott brought one thermometer for his entire crew, which broke and then he was really mad. He brought one ton of food for 17 men and for like South Pole trips, it's a good idea to like stash some return supplies you know, along the way so your ship isn't super heavy and bogged down when you're getting to the pole. Well, he only put one marker for the return supply cache, meaning if they were just a little teeny bit off course, they would have missed it. By contrast, Amundsen had four thermometers on board. He brought three tons of food, so three times as much, and they put 20 markers spaced out all over the place so they would know exactly where and they would never miss that return cache. Not only did Amundsen... Uh, Reached the South Pole first, but they also survived. And Scott's team, all of them died. Yeah. It's pretty tragic. (laughs) It is. But I mean, clearly, that's part of the reason they weren't prepared because Scott was a, I'm going to hope for the best kind of person. And Amundsen is, I'm going to prepare for the worst kind of person. Yeah. You should have fault tolerance. Exactly. Fault tolerance. Build fault tolerance in everything. You know, I have two computers. Maybe you don't need two computers, but if you have to write an article, you can write it on that tablet. And if that tablet gets broken, you've got a computer to do it. Yeah. You know, there's fault tolerance in almost everything. There's a good rule that I like to live by, which is called two is one and one is none. Because if one breaks, oh yeah, then, you know, you're SOL until you can order a new one. If one breaks and you've got a backup, well, then you just put that into place. You make a note to order another backup. Yeah, and and I do that now with like toothbrushes and toothpaste and like all these
1: things where like you're really mad if you run out of it and you're like, well, I don't want to leave right now. Mm -hmm. I just wanted
0: to go to sleep. Well, now I've just got a bunch of toothbrushes in the closet. Yeah. Done. So once you've defined your essential purpose, whatever it is, think, how can I utilize this concept of extreme preparation to make sure there's nothing that's going to derail me when I'm actually trying to do it? Remember, the the, the idea here is to make execution as effortless as possible. And when everything is prepared, then you can just steamroll right into your work. Yeah. You want to make it so, so simple and so protected
1: from unexpected things that it's almost like a natural conclusion that Mm -hmm. you will succeed. It's just going to happen because there's not much that could throw you off at this point. Yeah,
0: really all it is is you having the discipline to execute once you're ready to go. Yeah. That's it. So that's, uh, that's my last lesson. All right. My
1: lesson number three is also from the execute thing. And it kind of solves the question of, so if you like right now with College Info Geek, let's say there are 10 things that could all bring slightly more value to the content or to Google something or to any number of bottom line kind of things. Yeah. 10 things. Which thing do we fix first? What is the most important thing? Mm -hmm. And for this, he has an anecdote. And I love it because it makes me picture Russell from Up. And (laughs) it is adorable. But it's about like, I think it's little little Boy Scouts. This, this troop leader has a troop of, of Boy Scouts, and mm-hmm. they're trying to go hiking. But he keeps running into this problem where the fastest kids are all at the front, and you've got this group, and then you've got this one who's the very slowest hiker who keeps creating a gap in between the groups. And mm-hmm. his concern is he needs to keep all of these Boy Scouts safe. Yeah. He needs to keep them in one group so he can keep his eye on them. Well, eventually, because that gap kept forming, no matter how many times they stopped, he put the slowest kid in front, and reverse ordered them by speed. Mm-hmm. So now the fastest people are by default just – they're going the speed of the person in front of them. So everyone like, goes Russell's pace. They all go one speed. Now, yes, they're going slow. But in all honesty, he has a more honest view of how fast his troop is. Mm-hmm. its He's not being deluded by the one part that's fast because in yeah. truth, the whole system is the, the speed that matters, not just the speed of a few things in the front. So mm-hmm. – in order to make the entire group faster, anything he could do to make Lil Russell go a little faster speeds up every single part of that system by default. So if he spreads out the stuff in his backpack, if if he if basically if he distributes the weight really easily and then and then gives him gives him some extra water or something, maybe he's thirsty and he, he needs to move now. Yeah. The faster you make Lil Russell, the faster every single person moves. So the question when when it's which problem should I solve is which is the very greatest problem and don't even touch the other ones right now. Yeah. Don't think about them. They don't matter because they are right now not your slowest hiker. Mm-hmm. And once your slowest hiker is no longer the slowest, you fixed it, then you can fix the next slowest thing. Yeah. But if you're getting overwhelmed because you're like I want to put in all these Google things but also the server's broken. Well, obviously <laughs> one of those is more important. Yep. And don't even think about the Google things.
0: They're not even important yet because the server's broken. Mm-hmm. Or you could think about it in terms of our process too. Like what's causing us to not get videos out as fast as we could. Yeah. Well, I don't think the editors are going slow. You know. And I don't think it takes me very long to make a thumbnail. I don't think it takes me very long to actually like research the things. I think it's the writing. Like filming takes an hour. That's easy. You know, we've improved the filming process, but it's like, all right, the writing, that's what really slows us down. And uh, the two CGP Grey podcasts I listen to, he always says the same thing. My bottleneck is the writing. He's got an animator. You know, he's got people who work for him, but he is a slow writer. For him, that's fine. For me, it's like, yes, I am a slow writer and that frustrates me. So that is why my clarified purpose is, again, to put the Russell in front, to figure out how do, how do I make the writing process faster? Yeah. I actually learned a lot of lessons from the Crash Course Project because I had to create like a 10 video syllabus right up front before I ever started writing scripts. But then I had to deliver like five scripts at a time in batches. So that way when we came into the studio, I could film four in a day. Come back the next day, film the last one. Um, Cause you filming five scripts in a day is very, very, very hard. <laughs> but they were done and they were done in a batch. So if I can do that for CIG, we'll have more frequent videos. Once I get the footage of the editors, they're faster than yeah. I would be. Yeah, and
1: even if you could get a slightly better recording setup, if we could make the studio just a little nicer, maybe that's true. Maybe it would improve it in some way, but it's still bottlenecked by the very worst problem. Yep. So it's really not worth working on any of that stuff until mm-hmm. the bottleneck is fixed.
0: Yeah, so fix your bottlenecks. Strengthen your weakest links. Cool. Um, I had a little bonus lesson in here, and I'm, I'm just gonna throw it out there really quickly. Early on in the book, he talks about the importance of play, which he defines as basically anything you do for the joy of doing the thing rather than for or in service of some higher goal or some progress you're supposed to make. Yeah. And often we get so caught up in goals and productivity systems and, you know, school and all these things that put demands on our schedule. There's no more time to play. But when you don't play, you never really give yourself time to discover things organically. And I think even Einstein once said, when I examine myself and my thoughts, or my my, my methods of thought, I come to the conclusion that the gift of fantasy has meant more to me than my talent for absorbing positive knowledge. So even Einstein recognized the value just being able to have time and space to think and tinker and just do stuff. Yeah. If you've scheduled
1: your whole day out, mm -hmm. then you don't have any freedom. Exactly. You're just a program that you wrote yourself.
0: I guess that's cool, but Mm -hmm. still. So this is something I've been trying to build in for myself. And for me, like play is guitar playing. I, I mean, I have like an app that I'm going through sometimes for lessons that, you know, I, there's some progress that I work through. But for the most part, I take it out of the case and I just play. And you don't have, you're not like, I'm going to
1: put one lesson in this little app every day. I'm going to systemize it. I'm going to make it into a, a goal.
0: You're Which I did playing. at first because Musician actually has some stuff in place for that where it's like, there's a daily star goal. Yeah, that you can do, which I think is cool, but going through the lessons while fun is also like I'm doing it because it is a mission in the app. Whereas when I pick up my guitar and just play something, there is no mission. I'm just playing. And I often come up with stuff. I'm like, wow, that sounds really good. I'm going to keep, you know, building onto that riff. And at the end of the thing, I might have a riff. I might not, but it just doesn't matter. Yeah, because I enjoy playing. Yeah, and I think
1: at some point in the book, it's talking about like if you want a, a good clue as to what you might be able to do, if you just want some, like like your guitar example, if something that you could do that would relax you and be an example of play, then look to what you did as a child mm-hmm. before you felt super responsible and like you had to do all these things that somehow affected your future. Yeah. And so like for me, it's also an instrument. I, I play piano again and I'm trying to read more because I read hundreds of books as a child. Yeah, And then too. I stopped somewhere in there because I was busy. Mm-hmm. And that took something from me. So yep. like, what, what are the things that you're just drawn to that are just for fun? You don't need to make them into a goal either. Yeah. I, on purpose, never wanted to make photography into like a take this many pictures per something. Like not everything should be systemized. Mm-hmm.
0: Sometimes I wonder why we just like, when we go outside, it seems to be for some like exercise purpose. Like I'm gonna go bike 30 miles or run 10 miles instead of let's just go to a park and hit baseballs or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know, taking the structure out of, life can help sometimes so that's all i've got for this book yeah. um in general i would recommend it yes it is probably a lot of things you may have heard before but or at least for me because i've read many other productivity books well yeah see and i read this in 2015 before any of the other ones that i've read okay so m- maybe it was more new for you it might be more new for people listening yeah, at it's home. all a matter of your current your current situation yeah so if you wanna pick the book up, we'll have a link to it in the description down below if you're watching here on YouTube or in our show notes at cigpodcast.com 171. So definitely check that out. We will also link to anything else we happen to mention in the episode within those show notes. And um, you'll also find a link in the show notes to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That is a great way to support our show. Not only do we get feedback from you on what we're doing wrong, what we're doing right, what we can improve, but it also gives us it also gives the show a bump up the rankings in iTunes and gets it out to more people. So thank you so much if you do that. Thank you for listening. Regardless, and we'll see you in next week's episode. Stay cute.